Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters with your host, Betty Jo Tucker, author of Confessions of a Movie Attic, right here at www.blogtalkradio.com. fans out there. Thanks so much for tuning in to Movie Attic Headquarters. You don't have to be a movie addict to visit here, of course, but if you are one, it's definitely the place for you. I'm your host, Betty Jo Tucker, speaking to you on March 15, 2011. We have a terrific show planned for you today, folks, because actor, author, film critic Phil Hall has returned to bring us up to date about three of his exciting new projects. The first one is Uncorked, a very unusual movie he wrote and stars in. The second is a fascinating book titled What If They Lived? Hollywood's Lost Stars and the Futures They Never Had, which he co-wrote. And the third is the New England Underground Film Festival. It's always a treat to have Phil with us, so let's bring him on right now. Welcome back to Movie Attic Headquarters, Phil. Oh, it's so nice to be back, Betty Jo. Thanks for having me. We're so glad you could be here today. And I just want you to know how impressed I am with with both Uncorked and your latest book, but I have to tell you also how shocked I was to see you as that um, inebriated uh, park bench philosopher in in your new movie because uh, I just had to ask myself, is this the same person <laughs> who wrote all those scholarly books about independent cinema? And then I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why should I be surprised? Because <laughs> the last time you were on our show, Phil, you were talking about uh, London Betty and I think you played a, sort of a bizarre role in that one, too. I, I, I think it was a cross-dressing Marine, but I can't remember the name of the character. Who was, it was that? Uh, it was Sergeant Barbara Stone, and I was a transvestite <laughs> ex-Marine hitman. So that's right. I, <laughs> I have a penchant for playing weirdo characters in movies. I know, I know, and you're a man of many faces <laughs> and many talents, and we have lots of questions for you. And But first, I wanted to uh, tell the the um, people in the chat room and our listeners that uh, Nikki Starr uh, can't be with us today, but uh, Demos is taking care of the chat room, and we really do appreciate that. We We also appreciate all the people who've signed up for the chat, as well as our other listeners. And, as always, we appreciate our co-host, Jazz Shaw, who's on the line right now. Jazz, have you had a chance to see Uncorked yet? Twice, as a matter of fact. Uh, it, was engrossing enough, I, it was engrossing enough I went through it twice. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Well, then, you probably have some questions that you'd like to ask uh, Phil about the movie. I, I just absolutely uh, loved it, as surprised as I was at the at the character that, uh, <laughs> that Phil played. And I understand that this was um, 
a unique experiment in no-budget guerrilla-style filmmaking. <laughs> so I hope Phil will kind of touch on that as well as answer your questions. But go ahead, Jazz. Yeah, it, that, that's not a bad description. It was also, I, I thought, Phil, sort of a a revisitation of like a stream of consciousness, consciousness type thing. Um, sort of the film equivalent of uh, some people that have done some experimental one-man shows. But I, I, before we even get into it, I'll, I'll just tell everybody who tunes in and listens that you really do want to check this out. It's an experience. But without giving anything else away, um, where did it come from? Uh, what, what made you decide to do this and and launch into this type of a project, which is very different than you know your, your standard you know storytelling film? Well, Uncorked actually began, I was invited uh, last fall by a filmmaker named Joel Vesh uh, to participate in a video project he was doing in which uh, individuals would create improvised monologues. And we uh, shot our video in a park in New Haven, and I created the character of the, the drunk sitting on the park bench. And it was a six-minute video, but unfortunately, the sound recording wasn't very good. So mm. Joel wasn't able to use that video. But when I saw the footage, even though the, the sound was, was somewhat off, I liked the idea of this uh, inebriated, raucous storyteller um, going through this weird stream of consciousness monologue. And I started creating... Uh, more bits that I could add if I wanted to build this out, and what began as a six-minute monologue turned into a 40-minute monologue. Uh, Joel was not available to uh, to reshoot it, so I got in touch with two filmmakers, Eric Schrader and Aaron Sandler. I had worked uh, for them in a movie called Burial Boys, which is currently on the film festival circuit. I had a small role mm -hmm. in the film, and I explained to them what this character was about, and I told them I wanted to do this as guerrilla filmmaking, sit down, do it in one unbroken take. And um, Eric and Aaron already had their equipment, so we didn't need to buy or rent a camera or anything else. In fact, the only uh, expense related to this movie was a bottle of cognac, which cost $10. So it's literally <laughs> a, ten, it's a $10 movie. And we went to a, another park in New Haven, Connecticut. It was a winter uh, afternoon. It was December, and there was almost nobody in the park. And sat down on the bench and said, camera, action. And I did the monologue in one unbroken take uh, for 40 minutes. And uh, then Eric uh, shot some pickup scenes around the park, which were inserted into the film, uh, some weird uh, like giant turtles in the playground and uh, the squirrel, the squirrel <laughs> and this garbage on the ground, and so he inserted that while I was talking. Even though, uh, it, although it looked like it is a breakaway, it, I did not have a second take for this at all. And uh, the funny thing was, of course, at the very end, uh, when I how do you end? We didn't actually think about how do we end the film. When I got up and I actually left and I walked out of the park, and they just watched me in real time as I walked the whole distance of the park while the that's when the end credits come up with uh, some music but it was uh i was thinking because how could you create a film in the fastest and least expensive way possible and the only way of doing it is just to do it in uh, in a single take with as little uh in the way of uh, props as possible in this case it was just the the cognac bottle okay and I, 
I, I will tell you, by the way, I, I, I did beat that record by $3 once on a film with three actors. I didn't put that story for another day. Um, the, the character that you're portraying on the bench, you and I were discussing offline the, the, the fact that, first, you're, you're using a very different voice in there, and, and your appearance is perhaps not how you would normally look. But where does that character come from? Are there any aspects of you in that character, or is that someone that you did you base it on someone, or just a total affectation? Or the character is a composite of about fifteen different people. Um, part of the one part of me that in the uh, the character's stream of consciousness monologue is when he's um, complaining about pharmacies because I'm I, I don't like um, pharmacies and I'm and pharmaceuticals, but otherwise uh, there's there's absolutely nothing of me in the character. I've known a number of drunks over the years and uh, some people who are, give the impression of being inebriated even though they're sober and was able to, to mix that all together and create this, uh, this type of character. Well, I, I thought that you did such a great job of creating that character. In fact, I, I think this is a perfect example of creativity triumphing over big budgets because um, the the depth of, in this character, although he's crude <laughs> and disheveled and out of touch with reality, he's always entertaining and we and we uh, smile at him and kind of want to make fun of him. But we want, you know, we really are interested in what in what happens to him. So I think you need to I think you need to to uh, do a sequel. Actually, what you did in that film reminded me of similar characters played by such showbiz greats as Jackie Gleason and W. C. Fields. And uh, you know how how they sometimes played uh, inebriated characters and how I was going to say Charlie Chaplin actually Betty Joe I, I I thought Charlie really? Chaplin when I thought yeah just just from the body well, there was from the bit. body stance you know it, it just that's what struck me as he walked out of the park yeah yeah a little little bit of that yeah but well you know what we think of, the, of that film Phil how has it been received in in general so far well uh, I've sent it out to be reviewed and the reviews have been interesting uh some of the writers have said that my performance was terrific, which I'm very appreciative of. But some writers have been somewhat confused by it. They didn't quite know what this is about and why is this film here and what does it mean. And I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's just, uh, it, it's just basically performance art captured on camera, uh, and I think captured very well. Again, I want to mention Eric Schrader and Aaron Sandler, who were the, the guys behind the camera who made me look and sound so good. And it was in the in the film, um, the drunk actually interacts with the people who are videotaping him, and there are points where he's asking them questions, and you see the camera either nod or uh, shake its uh, back and forth no. So uh, a lot of it was very uh, it was give and take with myself and my collaborators on that. Well, uh, I thought that the whole idea, and and you wrote this yourself, yes. so but the whole idea. Of of this character discovering the presence of a camera in the in the park, and then you know interacting with them, even offering them a drink <laughs> from his liquor bottle, and then sitting down and explaining well his philosophy of life. I mean, he's, <laughs> before before he leaves, we find out about uh, 
his lifestyle, his outlandish tips for lessening stress, <laughs> which naturally include alcohol, his personal exercise program, walking to and from a bar each day, <laughs> and his family problems with his old lady, what he thinks about China, and what he, his fantasies about becoming a gynecologist or a lounge pianist. I mean, throw this all together and, talking, and the way he talks about it, you know, just with no no stopping. Mm-hmm. There's no stopping. I think it was just uh, very, very well done, and I, I hope people do get to see it. Is there any place where our listeners can see this movie now, or do they have to wait till it comes out on DVD or I'm currently... finishes up at the film festival? Well, or we shot the film in mid-December, so unfortunately I wasn't able to qualify the film for the earlier festivals this year, Sundance, the other Utah festivals, or South by Southwest. I'm going to look into uh, the other festivals that will be coming up later in the year. I'm also in discussion with an independent DVD label to see about getting this film and a number of other black and white short films compiled together for an anthology, because one of the, the oh. uh, Uncorked only runs 40 minutes. And... Unfortunately, there are a lot of wonderful short films out there, but unless you happen to get to one of the major festivals, there's a good chance you'll never see them. And uh, this way, I'd like to try to not only get my film seen, but also get other quality films uh, that run under uh, feature length to uh, to be seen That's by a wider public. That's a great idea, and um, I, I, you're always uh, about helping uh, filmmakers and um, and writers and film critics. So we really do appreciate that. I was wondering, you've you've had an interesting acting career. Now now with um, with Uncorked, then we had talked about London Betty, but you've also appeared in movies like Bikini Bloodbath Car Wash, <laughs> My Mouth Eyes Screaming, <laughs> and yeah. Abduction. And so you've uh, you played different types of roles in these movies. So you've reached a stage in your acting career when I can ask you this question that I ask the other actors that come on the show. What is your acting philosophy? You have to believe in your material. Because if I, I mean, an actor can come in and pretend to be another person and speak with a different voice and have makeup on, but if you genuinely don't have faith in the material that you're doing – no matter how wonderful an actor you are, uh, it's going to come through on camera. And it's also going to permeate the uh, the environment behind the camera because uh, obviously when, when you're making a film, there's a lot of downtime until there's camera and lights and sound check is done. And you have to be, you really have to be on the up and up throughout the entire production of the film because if you, if you come in feeling like, oh, I don't want to do this, um, you're going to bring down everybody else, and it's going to create a morale problem, which I think ultimately permeates into the uh, the film itself. Mm-hmm. Belief and attitude, both of those two things, are are important to you when you when you do one of one of these roles. And I, I do hope you continue <laughs> doing oh, acting. I have uh, plenty. I, uh, actually, I'm doing a film this weekend. Um, Aaron Sandler, who yeah. um, collaborated with me on Uncorked, has uh, asked me to shoot another short film in New Haven, Connecticut this weekend. And later this year, I have a major project coming out. It's an adaptation of Rudyard Kipling's Mark of the Beast, which was directed oh. by Tom, Thomas Edward Seymour, who made London Betty. And yeah. I'm very happy to be in that film, along with Debbie Rochon and Ellen Muth and Dick Boland. And 
I've seen the rough cut of it, and if I do say so myself, it's a wonderful film. And I can't oh, wait that to... should be exciting. I, I would look forward to that. I can't. Yeah, oh, I'm yes. very, very eager to to share that with uh, movie audiences. Well, we'll look forward to that. But I wanted to turn now to your to your new book, and I want to thank you for writing. What if they lived? Hollywood's lost stars and the futures they never had because it's a perfect book for movie addicts like me. I mean, there's so much information in this book about well, I think you have almost 50 stars who who died too young that that you deal with in in the book and um, the information that I'm learning about some of these people who were my my favorites, some of my favorites. I thought I knew everything about them, but this. This book gives more details uh, than I ever knew about, and then the whole fascina- fascinating idea of of uh, adding a section about um, what would they be doing now, or what would they what would they have done with the rest of their career, just is icing on the cake with this book. So, what drew you to uh, writing this book, and and why didn't you write it sooner? <laughs> well, I would have loved to have written it sooner, but a lot of publishers didn't want the book. I had been uh, well, no. pitching this. Yeah, I've been pitching this book for years, and I always was, people in publishing always told me it was a terrible idea. But the funny thing is people who are not in the publishing field always told me it was a good idea. So I figured, well, they both can't be right. Somebody, I, I let's keep pushing. And uh, Bear Manor Media, which published my last book, The History of Independent Cinema, uh, agreed to take this one on. And it's a, it's a labor of love that I've been living with for a number of years. And the inspiration for the book is just being a movie addict like yourself and watching a mm-hmm. film like Giant and saying, well, that was the end of James Dean's career and there was nothing after that. Or if you watch The Misfits, that would be the end of Marilyn Monroe's career. What would have happened if this wasn't the end? What would their next films have been and where could their careers have gone? And I was thinking, well, not only obvious choices like James Dean and Marilyn Monroe, but there are also a great many stars that uh, may not be familiar with uh, or to the uh, moviegoers today, such as uh, Laird Krager and Carol Landis and Thelma Todd and Evelyn Prier. And so I put together a list of stars who had uh, died much too young, beginning in the silent era with Robert Harron and Rudolph Valentino, and coming down to um, contemporary movies with individuals such as Heath Ledger and Natasha Richardson. And so this basically spans the entire spectrum of the Hollywood experience. Absolutely. Now, you, you, did the, you did this with a co-writer, with, with a co-author. Yes, and, I did. Uh, being a writer myself, although not books, not novels, you know, more, more along columns and things for newspaper digestion, um, I don't really have any experience working with someone else. Can you tell us what that was like? How, how do you split up the responsibilities for writing, and what's the collaboration process like? Well, it was in, uh, I created the, the list of the stars who would be included in the book, and my co-writer is Rory Leighton Aronsky. And I said to Rory, uh, which ones would you want to take on? And he came back with the stars that he wanted to write about, and I took the the other ones. We didn't collaborate on any of the chapters except for a chapter on Robert Francis, who was an actor in the early 1950s. He was under contract at Columbia Studios. He made four films. Uh, The studio had very big plans for him, but he died in a plane crash, uh, actually a few uh, weeks before James Dean passed away. And Rory was originally going to do the Robert Francis chapter, but there 
quite frankly, isn't a great deal of biographical material on him, and he was uh, he had asked for my input, so uh, I came in and was able to find more information on him, and that was the only uh, chapter in the book where the two of us actually wrote together. But otherwise, he did his chapters and I did mine. So this is sort of a topic where it's broken up uh, by subject. It's a little easier to compartmentalize that, I suppose, than than trying to collaborate on one biography of one person, let's say. That's correct. And it also went much faster because we have about 50 biographies. So if he took 25 and I took 25, uh, we were able to get the book done uh, actually in less than a year. Okay, now you said you were the one who selected the people and you asked your co-author which ones uh, you know he wanted to, to tackle. Um, with so many people to, to choose from, what were your criteria? How did you pick that? Because you know we, we've lost a lot of folks early on that could have had promising careers. Well, I wanted to um, deal with stars who were at a significant turning point in their lives and their careers, uh, and also those who were still somewhat at the top of their game. Uh, it sounds somewhat crass, but I didn't want to deal with uh, stars who had passed away but had been considered to be has-beens or uh, whose peak years were maybe uh, a decade or two behind them. Um, and mm-hmm. if there are Haim fans out there, please forgive me, but he's not <laughs> in the book because, quite frankly, when, when he passed away, although he was a young man, um, his his star had already waned at least two decades earlier. So um, someone like him would not be chosen. Um, also, somebody whose career had been firmly established, and it, it was fairly obvious that they would still be able to go on, I chose not to include them. Someone, uh, Jeff Chandler, who was a, a well-known actor in the 50s, um, was not included for that reason. It, there was no reason to suspect that his career would have waned. But if you look at somebody like uh, James Dean, who was basically at the, the the beginning of what looked like a spectacular career, or Marilyn Monroe, whose career was already starting to wobble a bit and it wasn't quite certain whether she would be able to have a comeback or go into a different direction. Uh, individuals like those were the ones that uh, were chosen for the book. Hmm, okay. Um, out, really of, out, of all the ones that you, out of all the ones that you have there, do you have a particular favorite uh, character that you had to study or somebody that was really surprising? Did you learn anything you didn't expect, uh, sort of a voyage of discovery for oh, any yeah. of these stars? Yes, and it's probably the most unlikely uh, choice. It would have been Jane Mansfield because a lot of people wow. were under the assumption that Jane Mansfield was, was a has-been by the time that she was uh, killed in an auto accident in 1967. And... The fact was that actually Jane Mansfield was very, very popular um, once she hit Hollywood in the mid-50s with films like The Girl Can't Help It or Will Success Boil Rock Hunter. She was under contract at 20th Century Fox. What had happened in the late 50s and into the early 60s, Fox began having very serious financial problems, and they discovered they could make a lot more money by loaning out Jane Mansfield to cheapo producers as opposed to creating vehicles for her. So the studio profited, but Jane Mansfield's career wound up being hurt because she was winding up in, in B-level films which were really below her her talent. And as a result, people assumed that, uh, or some critics may have assumed, oh, well, audiences didn't want her and, and the studio didn't want her and she had no talent and she was just second-rate Marilyn Monroe. And it was actually nothing nothing at all was, uh, was true like that because uh, her films actually were profitable, but... Uh, Fox 
wrecked her career. And oh. although she, um, her film work started petering off in the, uh, the mid-60s, she was still very, very popular uh, in stage and uh, in nightclubs. In fact, she sold out New York's Copacabana uh, in 1965 at a time when most people assumed the nightclub circuit was dead. Mm-hmm. And also uh, in 65, she had been a guest on the game show uh, What's My Line? Actually, the, two, the, uh, the clip's on YouTube. And she was the mystery guest, and she came out, and it was the most rapturous audience response Ever. People were wolf whistling and, and screaming and clapping. And I'm watching this clip. I'm saying that this woman is not a has been by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, although her film work uh, was not where it, uh, she wanted it to be, she was still working uh, and people loved her and people came out for her. So that was a very, very pleasant surprise because I assume, like many people did, that. Uh, her career petered out by the time she she was killed, and actually nothing was further from the truth. Yes, and that that was quite surprising to me, too. Um, I I had a, a couple of favorites uh, from the book, and one was about uh, James Dean because I I learned so much about him from reading the section on him. I did not know that he was scheduled at the time that he uh, died to make the movie Somebody Up There Likes Me, which the part went to um, Paul Newman, right? Right, yes. And then he was also scheduled to do The Left-Handed Gun. And so besides the learning facts like these, in reading the section about what if he had lived, it was just such a creative section there. Um, I think you you had uh, contacted someone to help you with that. I've forgotten the name of the person, but whoever did that, then just sort of let his imagination run wild and took uh, James Dean's life for for many years ahead until he was he was there at the funeral what some 30 years <laughs> afterwards i can't, I can't then, take but, credit for that that's Rory uh, Aronsky's chapter he wrote that and um do you remember who the um who he collaborated well, no, with on that what no, often uh, I don't remember the the man's name. I'm sorry to say, but we. Um, well, this is. Yeah. We this we. This is what, one of one of the parts of the book that I thought was the and and also um, I I was quite taken with the section on Carol Lombard, because I didn't realize how popular she was back in the late 30s. That she was, uh, I think, the highest paid actor ha- actor in Hollywood at that time. Yeah. And. Um, she actually made uh, To Be or Not to Be with Jack Benny uh, while right right before she died, and that wasn't released until maybe a, maybe um, you know a few months after her after her death. And you could see from that performance, and we we just saw it um, a couple of nights ago on Turner Classic Movies, and her performance holds up. I mean, she was just absolutely brilliant in it. I thought that. That section was was done very very well. Well, they all were, but but um, Carol Lombard, I did not realize uh, what great talent that she had. So your book is is just reviving these <laughs> these What's stars funny and about helping Carol us think Lombard about Lombard is that uh, a lot of the roles that she's remembered for today, she wasn't the first choice uh, for that part, including um, To Be or Not To Be. I think Marion Hopkins was the first choice, but right. she had uh, dropped out. And um, for viewers who may not, or I should, listeners who are not familiar with uh, Carol Lombard, 
um, after she completed work on To Be or Not To Be, uh, she was uh, an incredible patriot, and uh, America had gone into World War II, and she was crisscrossing the country selling war bonds, and she was killed in an airplane crash. And she was honored by President Roosevelt, who referred to her as the first American woman killed in World War II. Yes. And I understand that she was up for for a particular role that uh, Joan Crawford took. Yes. And from, I know uh, your book, you told a little bit about that. Yes, Joan Crawford took over a role that was uh, scheduled for Carol Lombard, and uh, Joan Crawford donated her entire salary to the Red Cross um, in tribute to Carol Lombard. Well, isn't that nice? Yes, yes that is. Well, I just, I'm just so, uh, I admire the the way that this book all fits together, and yet it does have its separate parts, and the and the time period that you covered, and the diversity of the stars: uh, Rudolph Valentino, Will Rogers, Jean Harlow, Dorothy Dandridge, James Dean, Heath Ledger. Even Alia, I believe, was uh, was in the book. Natasha Richardson, and um, it's just it's just so great to get a chance to learn more about these uh, these stars. So I I really really appreciate uh, this book, and I I just hope it's a big success. Now, thank you so much. Where can our where can our listeners obtain a copy of what if they lived? Well, listeners can go over to Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com or any of their favorite um, online bookstores, or they can go to directly to the publisher, Bear Manor Media. And I believe there's a link on your uh, webpage, Betty Jo, that uh, our, your listeners can click into. And not only uh, this book, but also my previous book, The History of Independent Cinema, which is being reissued in a second edition. So they want to get uh, two books, they're more than welcome to go for it. That's right up my alley just because of my interest in independent film, i got to say. Uh, it, I, and, I and that's such a tough quest. area. I know before we get to that, I just had one more uh, question that I've been wondering about this um, because I have read all your books and enjoyed and learned from all of them. But was this book uh, more difficult to write than your books on indef- independent film? Not really, because all of the books required intensive research. So um, the the independent film books were also history books, too. So I had to um, go back and cite a great many uh, individuals and accomplishments that I was previously unaware of. And this book was, for me, in terms of uh, the writing experience, was probably the most satisfying because I learned so much that I was not aware of. You get the feeling that, oh, I know everything about movies, and then I'm reading up about Will Rogers being one of the uh, the top box office stars of the 1930s, and I'm like, Will Rogers? And sure enough, <laughs> uh, uh, his films may not be considered classics today, but back in the 30s, he was the um, the number one star in, uh, in Hollywood. Yes. And it's hard to realize that when you see some of his movies today, because he doesn't seem to be doing much acting, but the people back then just absolutely loved him. He could do no wrong. So uh, I'm with you on that. Uh, you you learned, uh, learned so much, and then you passed it on to to us, and, and we really uh, we really do appreciate it. Well, I'm sorry, Jazz, I didn't didn't mean to interrupt you. I know you want to talk a little bit about uh, independent film, so I'll go oh, no, ahead. Oh, no, no, that, no, that's fine. I, I, I just, 
was just you know reflecting on the fact that that's a big area of interest of mine. Uh, we have one other project for years we really have to get to before we run into time. But before we do, uh, one thing that came up in the chat, if you could share with us, I hate to put you on the spot like this, um, if you had to sit down and do the exact same treatment of Elvis Presley, what what would your rating be? What if Elvis Presley had lived? Because people know him for his music, but he did a ton of films. Say what you will about the relative quality. He's in well, the book. He's in the book. Yes, Elvis. Well, Elvis. Right. Uh, so if you could share that with us. Uh, well, Elvis was a well. Believe it or not, he was a film star. Granted, most of the films were not that spectacular, but they all made money. And uh, Elvis initially was uh, gung ho about acting in films, but unfortunately, his uh, manager, the notorious Colonel Parker. Uh, kept steering him away from quality projects, putting him into these uh, frothy uh, race car and girl type of uh, capers. Clam bake. <laughs> oh, yes. yes. And it, w- it was interesting because uh, after the book was completed, I watched the um, Aloha from Hawaii concert that Elvis did in 1973. I have a video of that. And I realized this was the last that most people ever saw of him. Because four years after that, he was dead. And unless you were able to see him in concert between 73 and 77, when he was physically transformed into a much larger and much less healthier individual, uh, he almost disappeared from view. And I'm wondering if he had lived, uh, he would have to get his health uh, in order. He would have to um, certainly slim down considerably, because at the time of his death he was morbidly obese. And I feel he would have to break away from Colonel Parker, who restricted his career in too many negative ways. And I somehow suspect that um, Elvis would not have been able to do that. Uh, He had expressed agitation with Colonel Parker's uh, career choices for him, but Elvis was not a confrontational person. And I suspect that uh, he would have grudgingly stayed and done as the colonel had told him. I, I think the uh, the ship pretty much sailed for him in terms of uh, doing anything that would be film-related. The last film project that he was offered, which was a year before his death, was the Barbara Streisand version of A Star is Born. And uh, he rejected that for two reasons. One, uh, he did not want to take second billing to Barbara Streisand, and two, uh, Colonel Parker objected to the idea that Elvis would be playing uh, someone considered a has-been. So, again, even if there was the, the willingness to, to go forward um, on Elvis's part, the colonel was still um, nixing anything that would be even vaguely negative to the star's persona. And he, he would have continued uh, as a singer. He would have done concerts, but I think uh, I don't see him. I couldn't imagine him doing any additional films. Well, his loss was our gain because I, I really think Chris Christopherson did an amazing job in that film, and, and it's been one of my favorites for a long time, one of my favorite remakes. Uh, before we run into time, though, uh, one other project that sounds very exciting that we need you to share with us, you know, some information, the New England Underground Film Festival, and we're getting back into that area of getting off the beaten path, things that people who only go and see the uh, the top blockbusters that are being promoted uh, might not get to see. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, the, the festival is going to take place October 16 in Hartford, Connecticut. It's going to be a full-day festival, 
and it's a celebration of contemporary underground film. Uh, again, as with uh, the, I mentioned earlier with the case of Uncorked and other short films, there are a lot of wonderful under-the-radar films out there, but if you're not plugged into uh, the festival circuit, you'll never get a chance to see them. So this is an opportunity to bring the best of contemporary underground short and feature films to uh, the New England region. Uh, Hartford is, of course, being centrally located, the capital of Connecticut. And uh, this is the first annual event. Uh, I had previously programmed the uh, New Haven Underground Film Festival in 2008, and earlier I was programmer for the Light Plus Screen Film Festival, which ran in New York. Uh, it was a weekly festival uh, in 1998 and 1999. So... Um, I enjoy festivals, and I enjoy sharing uh, off-the-beaten-path and off-beat films with audiences, and this is uh, an opportunity to uh, to do it one more time. Sounds like a, a great festival, and we want to make sure our listeners know that you um, contribute to Film Threat, and uh, they can, can read your reviews and your film uh, commentary, and could you give the... URL for that site, Phil. Well, Film Threat is uh, www.filmthreat.com, and I've been uh, writing for them for 11 years. And um, you can read my, I have a column every Friday called The Bootleg Files, which is a a unique spin on uh, film history because it uh, tracks down the history of movies that can only be obtained in bootleg copies or have a history of being widely bootlegged. And I've been able to cover films uh, going all the way back to the Edison period to uh, a somewhat recent uh, effort called Right Wing Radio Duck in which uh, somebody took Donald Duck cartoons and grafted some (laughs) Glenn Beck radio commentary. And you have Donald Duck uh, being driven crazy by Glenn Beck's uh, bloviating. Am I misremembering my critics here, or is that um, uh, Chris Gore with Film Threat also, is it? Chris Gore was the founder of Film Threat. Um, He sold it last year after running it uh, for for about 25 years, and Mark Bell is the current publisher of Film Threat and the editor-in-chief. Yeah, I, I actually got to meet Chris, and he he does a lot of work with uh, G4 TV, and uh, he he gets he's more into horror films a lot these days, but uh, yes. he does some interesting work. Yes, he does, and um, I'm I'm just wondering, uh, Phil, if there's anything else you'd like to add about your film-related projects because the time is going by very quickly. Well, again, um, as I said, I have. Uh, several films uh, that I'm acting in. Uh, the big one, which will be out later this year, is Roger Kipling's Mark of the Beast. Uh, what If They okay. Lived... Yeah, that's right. What If They Lived is uh, currently in release, as well as a reissue of History of Independent Cinema. And also another book that I wrote back in 2006 called Independent Film Distribution, which has now been re-released in a second edition as well. So if you're an aspiring filmmaker and you're wondering how to get your film released, that's uh, that's currently out there for you to read. And the New England Underground Film Festival, look us up online. And if you're a filmmaker and you'd like to um, consider entering your film for consideration, we'd be very happy to see it. Well, you certainly keep busy, Phil. And it's been wonderful having you back on our show, but I do see our time is almost up. So thank you for being such a terrific guest again today. Well, thank you for having me. I always love coming on this show.
Well, it's been our pleasure, and please come back again when you have um, more projects to tell us about, uh, the Rudyard Kipling film when that's out. Will you do that? Oh, definitely. I'll get Tom Seymour to uh, to join me, and uh, we can talk about uh, the making of the film. It's uh, it's quite a fascinating project. We'll definitely look forward to that. But this is Betty Jo Tucker wrapping up the show with a big shout-out to the folks at Blog Talk Radio for their support. And thanks to Demos and Nikki and Jazz for all their help, and to our chatters and other listeners for tuning in. We hope everyone enjoyed the show. Please come back next time to hear a spirited panel discussion about the movie versions of stage musicals. Our distinguished guests, who all have musical production credits, will include film and live theater actress Joan Benedict Steiger, who's Rod's widow, blog talk radio host, the effervescent Danielle Dyer, host of Shiny Days, and the mad movie man, A.J. Hockery, one of our regular guests. It should be a fun show. In the meantime, don't you forget to check out our film reviews at realtalkreviews.com. That's R-E-E-L, realtalkreviews.com. Now, I'd like to close the show today with a song in remembrance of all the stars we've lost before they fulfilled their destinies. I chose this particular song because we'll keep remembering them as time goes by. You must remember this A kiss is still a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers move They still say I love you On that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man And man must have his name That no one can deny It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory A case of do or die
As time 